So how you doing? Well, I'm doing all right. My name is Bill Reeser. I'm the pastor of Encounter. I want to welcome everyone at the Father's House, at the Sanctuary. I want to welcome everyone online, watching around the country. I want to welcome everyone out to the greatest place to be on a Friday night. I'm just so excited to be here. I want to thank Pastor Marty for filling in last week. Uh, just did a great, great job and very concerned about the ice cream. Uh, also want to thank you for praying for my family and just praying for me. I had a great time in Kentucky, uh, and I'm just happy to be back. I'm fired up about tonight. So let's pray about tonight because we're going to go on a journey tonight. And uh, so fasten your seatbelts. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much uh, that you are good, and you're good all the time. And so we, we just pray for your blessing because we want to we honor you. Everything that we say and do tonight we just want to honor you. I pray that your word would not come back void. It would accomplish everything that you intended it to do. And I pray that we would be purpose-driven. I pray that we would find purpose between the bookmark statements of our lives. That in between whatever we do in this life, that no matter how bad we mess up, how bad we screw up, you're the great recycler of pain. And you want to use us to make a difference in this world that will make an eternal impact. Help us do that tonight and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, so I got a question for you before we start. How many, how many readers, how many people like reading books? You like reading books? That's good, you're a smart crowd. How many of you have read a book about someone that you met, someone that you know? You have, have you? That's, pretty, that's, that's pretty awesome. How many of you have ever had a book written about you? Oh, you. How about that? And I'm not talking about being written up at work or about something said about you on Facebook. I'm talking about a real book, a real book written about you. I was actually once in a book called Asphalt Gods. It was a, it was a New York Times writer, a guy by the name of Vincent Malazzi, and he wrote about the top basketball players ever to play at Rucker Park in New York City. And I was so excited because he basically listed about 50 of the top players ever play at Rucker Park, and I was so excited I came home, and I told my wife and my daughter that I was going to be in this book about, you know, all these great players, and my daughter looked at me and said, so dad, like, what are you, like, number 49, you know, out of 50, <laughs> so brought me right down, you know, took care of my pride, because I was actually very, very prideful, and uh, so, and here's another question for you, how many people in this room have never had a book written about them? Well, I'm here to tell you. I'm happy to tell you that you're all wrong. That you're all wrong. Because did you know that there's actually a book being written about you right now in heaven? There's a book being written about every single one of us in heaven. Look what it says. The scriptures are up on the screens. This is going to be from Psalm 139. If you don't have your Bibles, um, there's, a, there's a Bible in front of you on the seat. Take it with you. Just use it. We, we're going to use a lot of scriptures it says this in Psalm 139, verse 16. It says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. I love what God says to Jeremiah. I formed you in your mother's womb. And every day, according to that scripture... There's something written in heaven's book about you. God, God sees every day 
of your life. Matter of fact, your future is a memory to God. And every day of your life is recorded in a book. God wrote a book about you before your parents even thought about conceiving you. Before a single day had passed. That book in your life was mapped out and penned by God before you were born, even before the foundations of the earth were put together. God was writing something about you. King David once wrote in Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, and your law is within my heart. It just blows me away that there's a book in heaven being written about every single person in this room tonight. So let me ask you, what's being written in heaven's book about you? What's being written in heaven's book about you? And I want us to take a look at two bookend statements made about King David in the Bible. I thought we'd just stay in the the Old Testament since last week. Pastor Marty talked to us about Joash, who still blows me away that he became a king at the age of seven. But these were two bookend statements that I want to look at about the life of David. And these were the first and last things ever said about David. And the first thing, it said, this is the last thing, it's recorded in the book of Acts. This was the last thing ever said about King David. It said, after David had served his generation according to the will of God, he died. That's in Acts 13.36. After David had served his generation according to the will of God, he died. Now, that's a purpose-driven man right there who lived out God's purposes in his generation. Now, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing inscribed on your tombstone that she or he served God's purpose in his or her generation and then you died? You could receive no greater honor than that. Now, I want to backtrack and I want to look at the first thing said about David and it's also found in Acts 13.22. And this is God speaking. He said, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do, which is the definition of a man after God's own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now imagine those two bookend statements said of your life. Imagine if those two things were said of your life. And not only, what I love about David is that he not only lived out those statements with purpose, with passion, with power, with faith, but he had major opposition. And not only did he have major opposition, but he had several key moral and spiritual failures in between those bookend statements. You know what I... You know, that gives me hope. That gives me hope that God's not looking for perfect people, but he uses broken people who have screwed up their lives. He's looking for messed up people so he can take your mess and turn you into a masterpiece. God doesn't look for ability. He looks for availability. He doesn't doesn't look for qualified people. He qualifies the call. And God loves to take people who have thoroughly messed up their lives, just like me and you. So I thought it would be wise for us tonight to look at the life of David and some of the experiences that he went through. 
between the bookmark statements of his life. Why are we going to do this? What does this have to do with recovery? What does this have to do with encounter? Well, David knows a little something about facing impossible giants. And David reminds us that we're all one decision away from screwing up our lives. He also reminds us that someone can also live a regret-proof, shame-proof life of purpose and power despite his mistakes, setbacks, and shortcomings. Now, most people know David for the story of how he defeated the Philistine giant. Most of you know that. You probably saw the cartoon when you were a kid. But Davy, you know, you saw that. I know you did. That's pretty good, right? Never mind. You see, the story is worth reading. And here's why it's worth reading. We're all going to face giants at some time or another in our lives, right? And I'm speaking of what seems to be insurmountable problems and issues. Things that we can't change. Things that we can't fix. Things that we can't heal. We try and fight these giants, Right? But they seem to grow stronger. They seem to grow bigger. And they get bigger all the time. And maybe when I'm talking about giants, maybe it's a, for you, maybe it's a giant of fear. Maybe it's a giant of some personal sin that you fall into over and over again. Maybe it's the sin of pride, envy, gluttony, lust. Maybe a financial giant of debt or the loss of a job. Maybe it's your resentments, your bitterness. Maybe it's your deep-seated fears about your life being out of control. I don't know what your giant is. Maybe in a related way, your giant might be something that has a grip on your life, like a particular hurt, a habit, or a hang-up. Maybe it's a different type of giant altogether, like an unbelieving spouse or an unforgiving spouse. Or maybe it's a child that's far off from God. You pray for them, and the more you pray, the worse they get. And you find yourself wondering how you're ever over going to overcome the giants in your life. So how do you deal with giants? How do you deal with them? And I think we find the answers in the Old Testament account of David and Goliath. You see, David boldly, I mean boldly, defeated Goliath, armed with only a slingshot and five little stones. That's it. This little teenage ruddy boy all because a shepherd boy answered the call of God on his life, and he cut down this giant. It's an amazing story. It was only because he not only believed in God, but he believed God with childlike faith. He trusted God. He knew that God would take care of it. It was because he believed that the kingdom of God was not a matter of foolish talk, but a demonstration of the power of God. You see, David was a kingdom-minded, kingdom-guided type of guy. He really believed that nothing was impossible for God. He really thought that it was a piece of cake to kill this giant. There's nothing for God in the eyes of David. So here are a few life lessons that we can learn from the story about facing off with our own giants in life. One, if you're taking notes, you got your fill-in-the-blanks, make sure you got them when you walked in. One is recognize we all have giants. All of us have giants. And while it's true we all have giants, it's also true that all giants can be defeated. Every single giant can be taken down in Jesus' name. Because after all, Giants really start out that way, right? Goliath was not always a giant. He was not always nine feet, six inches tall. He was once a baby. And with the passing of time and the nurture of others, the baby became a child. 
The child became a teenager. The teenager became a man. And the man became a giant. In the same way, our giants often begin quite small. When we have a big sin in our lives, it usually starts out as a little thing. And then we nurture it. We feed it. We affirm it. We go back to it. We live it out. And in time, little things become big things, especially when we feed and nurse them instead of allowing God to forgive them and heal them. And that's what happens. So we all have giants. And the question I have for you tonight, I got a lot of questions for you, is are you feeding your giant or are you defeating your giant? Because you're either feeding it and it's growing bigger or you're defeating it in Jesus' name. The second thing is to realize that the battle belongs to the Lord. All major battles belong to God. David told Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 47, he said, this is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. This is the Lord's battle. This is why giants defeat us again and again and again, because we face them in our own strength. And we need to recognize that there are battles, just some battles reserved just for God. And so number three, attack your giant. This is so important. So many of us retreat from our giants. Goliath had come into the actual territory of the Israelites. He had actually crossed over to the actual territory of the Israelites. He crossed over their line. And not only did he cross over their line, he was taunting them. He was trash talking, taunting them each and every day. And if you tolerate a Goliath, he'll take over your territory. He'll walk right up to your doorstep. He'll come in uninvited, and he'll stay, and you'll never get rid of him. That's why you don't run from your giants. You face them. You go after them. You attack them. You never retreat from your giants. The Bible tells us as Goliath moved closer to attack in 1 Samuel 17, 48, David quickly ran out to meet him. He didn't run away to get away from him. He ran out to meet him. And the way you attack your giant is you keep running to God. You keep running to the cross. And you don't let your giants keep you from all that God has for you. Whatever your giant may be, you force it into the light. You stop rationalizing it. Even telling yourself rational lies. Because that's what rationalizing is. You stop excusing it. And you realize you can't defeat that giant in your own strength. You call on God. You pray for his power. And then you attack it. You draw lines in the sand. You build up accountability teams. You bring others into the fight. You have them pray for you. Hold you accountable so that you never go back and feed that giant again so that you're defeating your giants. You're speaking to the mountains instead of climbing your mountains so that you can have victory in Jesus' name because that's what God calls you to do and that's why Jesus died so you can live that type of victorious life in Jesus' name. That's what he is. You go to encounter. You keep coming back to encounter because we specialize in helping you overcome the giants in your life. And you stay away from people that are going to hinder your walk. That are not healthy for you. Some of you are in relationships with people. You don't need to be in those relationships. 
You need to get away from those people. You stay away from people or situations where you would be easily tempted. And you don't let that giant back into your life ever again. And finally, the last thing you do is you trust in the Lord. You trust in God. You see, you don't look at God in light of your giants. You look at your giants in light of God. You don't tell God how big your giant is. You tell your giant how big your God is. See, that's the problem. We go to God. We go, God, I've got a huge problem. It's so big. You wouldn't believe how big my problem is, God. And you've already defeated yourself by telling God how big your giant is instead of telling your giant how big God is. See, you tap into whatever faith you have. And you keep your eyes on the problem solver, not the problem maker. And you watch what God will do for you. You declare that the battle's not yours but God. And you stand firm and you watch how God will slay the giants in your life. He'll do it every single time. You see, the Israelites would come out every day. And they would look at that giant. And they would be terrified. They would be consumed with fear. Because they saw that giant in relationship to themselves. But they took their eyes off of God. They never saw that giant in relationship to God. David saw the giant in relationship to God. That's why he had no fear. That's why he defeated the giant. See, they let fear consume them because they looked at Goliath in comparison to themselves. Now, I love this conversation that David and this giant had. Now, I'm from New York, and I used to talk, I, I love sports. And if you grow up in East Harlem in New York City, there's a lot of sports fanatics. Matter of fact, one of my favorite shows that I watch in the morning sometimes is First Take, which Stephen, uh, Stephen, a., Stephen A. Johnson, and they, 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 they debate sports all the time. But it's good because, you know, they, they don't really say any really bad things. But in New York City, when I would talk sports on the street, we would be trash-talking. I mean, if you talked about the New York Knicks or the Yankees and all that stuff, I mean, there was a lot of trash talking going on. And this conversation between David and Goliath is some serious trash talking. Okay? And I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's sort of rated R because it's nasty. It's just mean. So let's just pick it up. And this is 1 Samuel 17, 42, 47. And this is, this is Goliath speaking, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Here's what the giant said. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. Man, that's mean. That's just mean. That ain't right. I mean, that's just, oh. So here's what David said. I mean, this is, this is biblical trash talking right here. Here's what David replied to the Philistine. He said, you talking to me? You, talk, you, you, you talking to me? Are you serious? No, that's not what he said. I'm watching too many Godfather movies. Hold on. They, David replied to the Philistine. He said, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But watch this. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, big guy, the Lord will conquer you, and I'm going to kill you and cut off your head. Could you imagine this? Today, big guy, I'm going to kill you and cut off your head. This little kid speaking to this nine-foot, six-inch giant. 
And then I'm going to give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. Wow. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. And you know the rest of the story. He just takes that slingshot, boom, he's down. Down for the count. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. So it's safe to say that David's off to a good start. This is how he became famous. This is how he was feared among the nations. And so like David, many of us get off to a good start in life. We even get off to a good start in following God, don't we? But something happens along the way. And we get detoured. We get derailed. We get blindsided in life. And for many of us, derail, the derailment, the setback, the depression, the hopelessness, the paralyzing fear, the addiction never started with something major. And just like giants don't become giants overnight, our personal catastrophes typically don't happen overnight either. And there's a real predictable pattern that usually precedes any catastrophe. And like our personal giants that we've been feeding for years, many of us are never aware of these subtle yet deadly phases of life and bad seasons that can take us out. And they're deadly. And they have the ability to destroy our lives. And here they are. Are you ready? Complacency leads to confusion. Confusion leads to compromise. And compromise always leads to catastrophe. I'm going to break each and every one of, one of them down right now. First one is complacency. See, giants start lurking when we get complacent and comfortable. Like I said, you always hear me all the time, you're either running to the cross or running from the cross, and before long, complacency will have you drifting from God. I was told a long time ago that an idle mind is a devil's workshop. You constantly need to stay in the game. You constantly need to stay in God's word. You've got to be prayed up each and every day. The day that you walk out of your house without the armor of God is the day that you walk out naked and unprotected because the devil is lurking. He's waiting. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you can't be complacent. You've got to be intentional. You have to be purposeful. And complacency always leads to confusion. You move, if you don't, if you don't do something about your complacency, it always leads to confusion. In this phase, we begin to rationalize and play mental games with ourselves. You know, the biggest liar to you in your life, you know who it is? It's you to you. You convince yourself that you're all right when you're not all right. All the time. I'm fine. And we say things like, maybe my giant wasn't all that bad. Maybe I can handle it by myself. And in this phase, we start to lose discernment and good judgment because those are the first things to disappear when you stop running after God. Psalm 110, 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all who follow his precepts have good understanding. Now let me explain. Sometimes people hear the word fear God. And it's good to fear God. But to fear God is to love him so much and to follow him so much that you don't ever want to let him down ever again because of what he's done for you. And if, so, and, and if there's a God of the universe 
that holds my life in his hand, I'm going to fear him. And I do. See, those who fear the Lord have a continual awareness of him, a deep reverence for him, and a sincere commitment to obey him because of the gratitude in their hearts for what Jesus has done for you. See, if you don't allow head knowledge to translate into heart actions, you can turn into a spiritually educated idiot. (laughs) Or another term is a fool, as the Bible says, and find yourself in one of those deadly and lethal phases of destruction. Let me say it again. If you don't allow biblical head knowledge to translate into heart actions, you could turn into a spiritual fool. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. They had, all the, they had all the head knowledge in the world. They knew the law upside down, every way out. But they, but they were spiritual fools because they couldn't discern anything because the sermon was gone. Complacency and confusion then lead to compromise. When we get to this phase, what do we do? We, we're likely to return to the risky places that got us in trouble in the first place. It could be the bar. It could be the mall. It could be Baskin Robbins. You never know. It could be the porn site. Enabling the person that you love. Suppressing your feelings again. Bursting out in anger. Abusing those closest to you. Or allowing the abuse to continue. We go back to that unsafe place. Like the gambler that says, let's go to Vegas for just the shows. Let's go to the bar because happy hour is a half price during happy hour. And we place, when we place ourselves in those old environments, we're likely to make poor choices. And it may begin with just little compromises, but it won't be long before it unravels. And all the ground that has been gained, all of a sudden has been lost. All because we're feeding our giants instead of defeating them. Now, let me add a serious symptom of the compromising phase. Often when you're making compromises, you're making unhealthy comparisons. We do that all the time. And when you're making unhealthy comparisons, you're making cheap, cop-out, codependent critiques so you don't have to work on you. See, when you let denial convince you that you don't have to work on you, You'll look for any cop-out critique of a person, a ministry, even a church. You say things like, I don't have issues like those people. I don't struggle like they do. Well, I wish Encounter was just a 12-step program. And the more you compare, the more you compromise. And the more your giant of denial gets bigger and bigger until you're so confused that you don't know which way is up and which way is down. All because you're not focused on you and allowing God to heal and change you. Because you're too busy critiquing other people and programs as your cop-out, bad coping mechanism of comparison. Which brings us to the fourth phase. Catastrophe. This is when the whole thing just blows up. But the thing we need to really understand is this. The catastrophe phase is not disaster. A lot of people think, well, it just all unraveled. The catastrophe phase is not the disaster. You know what the disaster is? It's only, it's when you started getting complacent. That's the catastrophe. You see, catastrophe is simply the destination that complacency, confusion, and compromise were all leading you to. 
And when you study the life of David and see how he gets off to this great start, he gets detoured, just like so many of us. And here's what happened, and many of you are familiar with this story of David. David's hanging out on his roof one day. She should have never been on that roof, never been hanging out there. And he sees this girl named Bathsheba taking a bath. Now, the name Bathsheba in the original language means oath and voluptuous. Needless to say, she's a bombshell. (laughs) David's already a goner because he's locked eyes with this girl. And of course, he calls for her. He sleeps with her. He has sex with her. He gets her pregnant because obviously David is potent as well. And David has her husband killed because that's what every man, you know, that follows God, that's after God's own heart, that serves God's will. And his purpose and his generation does, right? He has her husband killed. But that wasn't the catastrophe. And not only does he have her husband killed, David goes on almost a two-year cycle of insanity. Where he's just living a life of denial, running from God. He doesn't even know who he is. He's a goner. But a lot of people think that was the catastrophe. But if you go to 2 Samuel 11, 1 and 2, I want you to just look at this text and I want you to look at, look at it closely. I'm going to break it down for you. It says this, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Now let me put this in, in context. If you were a king just like you heard about Joash, you had certain jobs to do. If you were king of Judah or Jerusalem, Israel, in the Old Testament times, there was always something prefaced for each king. Either they did what was right in the Lord's sight, either they, or, or they didn't. David obviously was doing something. He was doing everything right in God's eyes up to this point. The other job that you had as a king, if you were king of Israel, if you were king of Judah, Jerusalem, you were in charge of the army. You went out to war. You went into battle. And whenever there was a time of war, you always went out with the army. You led the army. That was one of your jobs. You always went off to war. That's what you did. And so for some reason, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But here are the five words. But David remained in Jerusalem. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it's no accident that the very next scripture, the very next words from that statement is this. One evening... David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And you know the rest of the story. David's catastrophe can be found in five words. But David remained in Jerusalem. Probably one of the most five most dangerous words in the Bible. He remained in Jerusalem. His complacency was his catastrophe. And if we're not careful, our complacency will be our catastrophe. And here's why. We have to be all in. We have to be all in. 
Otherwise, these deadly phases of life are going to take us out. We're either running after God or running away from God. You're either a purpose-driven person or you're not. You're either kingdom-guided or kingdom-minded person or you're not. You're either surrendered to God or you're playing God. You're either, you're either submitted to God or submitted to your pride. You're either hot, cold, lukewarm for God, and God would rather have you hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Complacency and passivity are the trademarks of the, of the lukewarm follower. And I see it all the time. I see it how it takes people out. And you're in danger if you're living a lukewarm life following God. Great Glory wrote in one of his devotions, he said this, have you ever eaten something that turned your stomach? And I love that. And it reminded me of when I first visited Carolyn. Carolyn grew up in eastern Kentucky, in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, just in a country home. And I'm from New York City. And we were having dinner at the table, and her dad was there. And they had buttermilk. And I never saw buttermilk before. And I'm from New York. There's two things I love, butter and I love milk. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a great combination. Milk and butter together, this has to be awesome. So her dad takes a drink of this buttermilk, and I'm saying, give me some of that buttermilk. So I drink, so I take a swig of this, but they don't even tell me that this thing is nasty. <laughs> this thing is rotten. So I take a sip of this thing, and I spit it out on everyone at the table. I said, this is rotten. This is bad. This is horrible. How could you drink this stuff? We laugh. This is exactly how Jesus feels about lukewarm people. He wants us all in or he would rather have us all out. See, Jesus uses this phrase in Revelation 3 when he says to the church, Laodicea, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, some churches make the Lord weep. Others make him angry. The Laodicean church made him sick. So what does this mean for us? Keep in mind that these words are for us today. They're for believers today. And so the question is, are you spiritually hot, cold, or lukewarm? And don't answer too quickly. Because the lukewarm person is usually the last one to know. Let's make sure that we're not lukewarm spiritually. Let's make sure. Let's, let's decide that tonight. That we're not going to be lukewarm. Let's make sure we're, we're an all-in group of followers. Because you can be a, a driven, a purpose-driven, all-in person despite what you've done, despite what's been done to you, despite all the mistakes that you've made. David was an all-in type of guy, and he blew it big time. But he let God take his setback and recycle it to make him a trophy of his grace because that's what God does. He let God use him to serve his generation according to the will of God before he died. David made a comeback because he didn't let his setback determine his legacy. So what was the turning point for David? How did he come to his senses? We're not time to get into the whole story, but you need to know David is so far gone that there's no way that he comes to his senses on his own. He needed the help of a loving friend who confronted him. And this is why I love what we do. Because we're more concerned about what you need to hear as opposed to what you want to hear. And I love the amplified version of Galatians 6.1. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, and I love this, and it gives the definition of spiritual, because that's a hot term today. 
Oh, I'm spiritual. What about you? Oh, I'm very spiritual. Really? Oh, wow. You're a great person if you're spiritual. That's like a hot word. But the Amplified Version gives a great definition of what it means to be spiritual. It says, that is you who are responsive to the guidance of the Spirit. That is you who are responsive to the guidance of the Spirit. Now, what does the Spirit do? Guide you into truth. He makes, God tr- he makes God's truth plain to you. He convicts you. He leads you into that truth. It says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual ought to restore such a person, in a, here it is, in a spirit of gentleness, not with a sense of superiority or self-righteousness, keeping a watchful eye on yourself so that you are not tempted as well. This is what Nathan does for David. And out of that encounter, David confesses and then repents to God in Psalm 51. Here's an excerpt of it. Here's David's prayer of repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Purify me from my sins, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Remove the stain of my guilt, and create in me a clean heart, O God. And here's what he really needed. Don't banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. That should be in all of our hearts. This may be the best example of what repentance really is. And you may never know what real love and acceptance is at encounter until you get honest with a trusted person that you can confess your junk to. See, there's a weight that gets lifted off your shoulders when you know that you're clean. And I know what the fear is. If I tell you my sins and you reject me, then I'm all I've got. I know it. But I also want to tell you something. Your sin ain't that special. (laughs) Ain't nobody here going to be shocked. And God's not going to be shocked. You think it took God by surprise? You think he fell off his chair? Whoops, I missed that one. (laughs) I don't think so. You see, when you know that you're forgiven, when you know that you're loved, when you know that you have purpose, when you know that the battle's not yours but the Lord's, when you know that you can speak to the mountains and slay the giants in your life, it should do something to you. It should light a fire in you. It should light a fire in your bones to be a purpose-driven follower of Jesus Christ that's never going to be denied your healing. That's never going to be denied your purpose in life. That's never going to be denied victory. It's not going to be denied your healing from your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. You're not going to be a victim all your life. You're going to be a victor. You're going to have authority. You're going to walk in authority. You're going to speak to the mountains in your life. They are going to be removed in Jesus' name. You're not going to be denied your calling to serve God with passion and purpose. You're not going to be denied your relational, your spiritual, your emotional healing. Whatever healing that you need, you're not going to be denied it, no matter what it is. It should make you intentional. It should make you purposeful, prayerful, spirit-filled, most of all, hope-filled. That's what we're about at Encounter. It should make you draw a line in the sand 
each and every day of your lives and shout to the world, I'm all in for Jesus and nothing or no one in all creation is going to stop the plan of God for my life, this side of heaven. It should put your giants on notice. Saying you come against me, you come against the Lord, the host of heaven's armies. You come against me, I'm going to strike you down and cut off your head. And I'm going to give you a carcasses to the boat, to the birds of the air. You don't come against me, you come against me, you come against the God of the universe. Do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know who my father is? You've got to have that fight in you. And men, if I could just speak to you guys. God's looking for men to just step up and walk in that authority. You've got to reject passivity. You've got to just get rid of this all woe is me attitude. You've got to wake up every day ready, dressed for battle, ready for battle. Take on that battle. And start notching up the victories in your life. You start declaring God's word, God's promises, God's power, God's destiny for your life, for your family. You don't let Satan take your family. You kick him out of that house. You kick him out of your presence. You take authority over that in Jesus' name. You call on whoever you have to call on. You declare that God's going to dispatch warring angels on your behalf. So if someone does battle with you, they're doing battle with God. And you do it with conviction. You do it with confidence. You do it with faith. Because faith is everything. Faith is everything. You always hear me say that we always think that we're going to get judged on what we did or what we didn't do. But we're going to get judged on what we believed or didn't believe because what we believed or didn't believe determined what we did or didn't do. Because faith is everything. According to your faith, it'll be given to you. So when fear comes knocking at your door, you let faith answer it. When the devil comes knocking, reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. And when the devil declares to you your story is your past, you remind them that Jesus took your past and made your past your past. And Jesus is rewriting his story through you. And you're a trophy of his grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You have to do that. You've got to wake up with that fire. Whatever it is, whatever you declare, you have to declare it. You have to say, my story is this. I'm walking with Jesus Messiah. Devil, you're headed to a lake of fire. And I'm walking with Jesus every day, so get off my property in Jesus' name. So let me ask you again, what's going to be written in heaven's book about you? What is going to be written in heaven's book about you? What line are you willing to cross over today? What commitment to God are you willing to give today? Because Jesus invites us all to come and see, come and die, and go and tell. That's our mission. It's not the church's mission. It's our mission. The Great Commission was never meant to be a church initiative. The Great Commission is the responsibility of every single person that's decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why my life mission in Acts 20, 24, but my life is worth nothing to me until I finish the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others about, about the wonderful grace of God. I do this every day. I lead encounter. And we're, we're doing this as a family. And the reason why I do it, because every day I discover that there's people that are going to spend an eternity in hell without Jesus, and everybody needs Jesus. I do this because followers of Jesus live like they're going to hell. 
stuck in bondage with no hope because they got derailed along the road. And I'm here to tell you that there's a way out. I'm here to tell you that you can be free. You should be free. It's your calling to be free. It's your destiny to be free. And if you're not living the free life, because when the Son of God sets you free, you are free indeed. You're living underneath your privilege as a child of the one true king. And I want to tell you tonight, let Jesus out of your little box. Let him liberate your life. Let him fire you up with his forgiveness, his peace, his power, his words, his wisdom. You have to exchange your life for his. You surrender your life to the one who loved you first and more than anyone could ever love you, this side of heaven. He died for you. And if it was just you, he would do it all over again. If it was just for you. He stepped over the line. He stepped over the line of the cross, the grave, of hell. And he stepped over that line. He defeated those things so that we can spend an eternity with him, praising him with millions of others that have made that same decision. Friends, I've stepped over the line. I am not going to live a passive life anymore. I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to be a purpose-driven person. And I want you to be as well too. I want you to be a force to be reckoned with. I want when the enemy comes at you, I want you, when you start praying, I want the enemy to start shaking in his boots. I want you to realize, the, you know you have authority in your prayers. Do you know that? Some of you are afraid to pray. Some of you think you're not worthy to pray. Listen, we don't come to God based on what we do or what we don't do. We come to God in prayer based on what he's done for us. That's why he tells us to boldly come to the throne of grace where we'll find mercy in our time of need. But I want to tell you, this journey is not for lukewarm people. It's for people who are after God's own heart. People who are willing to pick up their cross. So I don't know about you, if you're willing to step over the line, if you want this power, you want this purpose, you want this freedom, you want to be used by God, You just have to tell God that you're all in. I want to lead you in a prayer. I want you to pray this prayer with me. I want you everyone to close their eyes. And I want you to pray this prayer and I want you to mean it with conviction. And I want you to live, I don't want you to just pray this prayer. I want you to live out this prayer. I want this prayer to be the norm for you each and every day of your life. So pray this with me. Just agree with this prayer. Today I'm stepping across the line. I've made my choice. The verdict is in. My, de my decision is irrevocable. And there's no turning back now. I'll give the rest of my life to serving God's purposes with God's people on God's planet for God's glory. I will use my life to celebrate his presence, cultivate his character, participate in his family, demonstrate his love, and communicate his word. Since my past has been forgiven, and I have a purpose for living, and a home awaiting in heaven, I refuse to waste any more time or energy on shallow living, petty thinking, trivial talking, thoughtless doing, useless regretting, hurtful resenting, or faithless worrying. Instead, I will magnify God's name, grow to maturity, serve in ministry, and fulfill my mission in the membership of his family. Because this life is preparation for the next, I will value worship over wealth, we over me, 
character over comfort, service over status, and God's purposes over possessions, positions, popularity, and pleasure. I know what matters most, and I'll give it all I've got. I'll do the best I can with what I have for Jesus Christ today. I won't be captivated by culture, manipulated by critics, motivated by praise, frustrated by problems, depilated by temptation, or intimidated by the devil. I'll keep running my race with my eyes on the goal, not the sidelines of those running by me. When times get tough and I get tired, I won't back up, back off, back down, back out, or backslide. I'll just keep moving forward by God's grace. I'm spirit-led, purpose-driven, mission-focused, so I cannot be bought, I will not be compromised, and I shall not quit until I finish the race. I'm a trophy of God's amazing grace. So I'll be gracious to everyone, grateful for every day, and generous with everything that God entrusts to me. Because I know Jesus and his church are the hope of the world, I will not despair, no matter how bad things may seem. Instead, I'll dare to live with hope, care for those without hope, share the source of hope, offer prayer for those needing hope, and declare the word of hope to everyone everywhere. So today, I join the fellowship of the purpose-driven. Those who, like David, serve God's purpose in his generation. I'll serve my eternal Savior in the age and culture he's placed me. I'll share his timeless message in timely ways. And in a changing world, I'll trust his unchanging word. To my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I say, however, whenever, wherever, and whatever he asks me to do, my answer in advance is yes. Wherever you lead me, whatever the cost, I'm ready. Anytime, any way, anywhere. I want to be used by you in such a way that on that final day, I'll hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful one. Come on in and let the eternal party begin. Let's worship. <laughs>